This is a Federal News Network podcast. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin decided this week to completely shut down DOD's giant fuel storage farm near Honolulu. The Red Hill facility has leaked fuel into groundwater supplies. The most recent incident sickened some 6,000 people living in Navy housing. The decision has major strategic and logistics implications for the Indo-Pacific region, and the military is going to need to replace that storage capacity one way or another. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu talked about the challenges with Hudson Institute military logistics expert Tim Walton. I think the first step will be making sure that there are no more operator errors in terms of the operation of the, the facility. This latest spill seemed to have been caused by an operator error as opposed to, let's say, some deficiency in the fuel tanks themselves. So I think they'll want to triple check their procedures to make sure nothing like that is going to happen again. Moving beyond that, though, um, they're going to need to have, I think, some other alternatives to transfer those fuels to uh, and make sure that those fit into different operational plans. So I think DOD's likely been trying to set up what are the, the types of alternatives or substitute options, both afloat and ashore, that can meet some of these fuel store requirements. But at the same time, I, w- I would assume they're still going to need some large storage capacity on Oahu itself, since it's such a large fleet concentration center. I mean, just s- scattering the existing stores across Indo-PACOM probably is not going to meet all their strategic objectives, I would guess. You're absolutely right, Jared. And so I think there are stores at uh, Pearl Harbor and at Hickam itself Um, But I still think there's likely going to be a need for some additional um, stores there on Oahu. Uh, I think that the DOD's press release talking about commercial infrastructure and how they will want to leverage that likely hints at the fact that their DOD's um, probably going to examine the use of the above ground stores that are operated by Park Pacific um, in the west part of the, the island. So these are commercially owned fuel stores that DOD could perhaps contract to store anywhere from 300,000 uh, barrels to 3 million barrels. Um, that larger number would be using an unused refinery that's there on the island. But uh, DOD now has, I think, an ability to move some of its about 5 million barrels of fuel that it had at Red Hill and move maybe a million barrels to 3 million barrels to some of these above ground commercial storage tanks on Oahu. And then the other initiative would be having some of those fuel tanks be afloat in pre-positioned tankers, some of which could be near uh, the, the Hawaiian Islands, and then others uh, could operate in other parts of the Indo-Pacific. One of the advantages, I think, of Red Hill, besides its sheer size, was that since it was underground and reinforced, it was pretty difficult for an enemy to attack successfully. Talk about some of the advantages of, of that sort of bunkered approach versus the above ground uh, approach that you were just talking about and what sort of vulnerabilities DOD might create in the short term by moving a lot of this into above ground tanks and tankers afloat? So That's a great question. So um, hardened underground fuel stores really were necessary in 1943 when construction at Red Hill started. And, and I would argue that given the even more potent precision strike capabilities that China and Russia have today, some hardened underground fuel stores continue to be required. Uh, the benefits of hardened underground stores like at Red Hill, but at some other bases that we have around the world are that no single location is invulnerable to attack, but it does make it more difficult for an adversary to mount an attack that can precisely attack um, the surface expressions of, of those fuel stores, or depending on the facility, could penetrate deep enough to get at the fuel tanks themselves. 
So uh, moving forward, DOD, I think it's going to continue to have a need for hardened underground fuel stores in Hawaii and in other places throughout the Indo-Pacific. And, and I'd argue DOD likely needs to, as part of this in this change, start to invest more in some hardened underground fuel stores in other places like Alaska, the Marianas, Compact Free Association states, and Australia. Um, hardened underground fuel stores, though, won't be the, the only solution. And so I think DOD is also looking at complementary uh, above-ground stores. Uh, above-ground stores are cheaper to build. They're also easier to maintain and operate. Uh, most commercial stores are above-ground nowadays, and uh, they have those advantages. Um, we see DOD building some above-ground stores, for instance, on uh, in Darwin right now, and another project in Tinian. And so I think above-ground stores have their place, um, and another option could be these complementary contractor-owned, contractor-operated stores on Oahu, but they're obviously a lot more vulnerable uh, to attack. So moving forward, I think there's going to have to be a mix of some new hardened underground fuel stores, ideally ones that could be double-hold and facilitate interstitial monitoring and maintenance so that we can make, do this in an environmentally conscious and responsible manner, but some also some complementary above-ground storage tanks. The, the final category that you mentioned are stores afloat in terms of maritime tankers. And so maritime tankers, you can move them around, uh, and that makes targeting at long ranges a lot more challenging because it's difficult to plan exactly where that tanker could be at any single moment when you fire a long-range missile or when a bomber takes off to, to go attack it. But um, as you point out, uh, tankers afloat on the surface do have some vulnerabilities. So I think the Navy will need to think about how they want to best protect those uh, floating fuel tanks. The secretary statement at least hints at the idea that there are good strategic reasons to have your fuel reserves dispersed across the AOR instead of in one place. But but I think it's also fair to say that they didn't do this primarily for that reason. They, they probably would not be walking away from Red Hill if it was still politically and environmentally tenable. So I, I guess the question there is, what are the lessons from this episode of making sure that you take care of your existing stuff? Do you have a good sense for how much else is at risk due to, uh, you know, a lack of maintenance, given the degree to which DOD has knowingly taken risks in the facility sustainment and modernization accounts for the past decade, probably more? Uh, that, that's a great question. And I completely agree with you that, that moving forward, uh, DOD is going to have to focus on this a bit, a lot more. Um, DOD has, uh, I think, in general, tried to avoid recapitalizing some of these major projects that were built during World War II or during the Cold War, and that it's continued to use just because they're major expenses, um, and they usually don't have any strong constituencies. Um, it's easier for, I think, members of Congress and, and um, their constituents to point to the ship that's built in their district or the aircraft or some other asset few people get fired up about fuel tanks. Um, so I, I think uh, there, there is growing interest in making the, the types of investments in these readiness or integration activities that are needed. Uh, House Armed Services Committee, Subcommittee on Readiness Chairman John Garamendi of, of California has, I think, expressed interest in trying to apply a critical lens towards what are the types of investments that DOD has been foregoing for a long time and get at those in this legislative cycle. So I think we should be seeing a growing number of hearings um, and legislative activities uh, on that subject. Tim Walton, a fellow at the Hudson Institute, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, 
And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for black and brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Many of us, if we're being honest, have given up hope on good sleep. But why? Well, if you're like me, you've tried everything and nothing has helped. So if we're not going to sleep well anyway, why try? That kind of thinking is so 2021. It's time to rethink our nights and days and demand more from our sleep. Talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit DiscoverTheForest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.